Revelation chapter 11 tonight, as we talked about the power and authority of God last week, we're going to continue to talk about that tonight. And what I hope to accomplish in this chapter is for us again to see God's power and authority as something to certainly worship Him for and praise Him for. But I also want to, I want to put a little bit of a twist on that tonight as well. As we go through this chapter, and as even you think through your life and the Word of God and, and your experience with God, I also want you to look at it from this perspective. Because God really brought this home to me in these last couple of weeks as I was preparing for tonight. And that is not only to worship and praise God for His unbelievable power and authority that He displays, but how about worshiping and praising God for the power and authority that He chooses not to display? In fact, that may even be more to praise and worship God for. Because we're talking here about a God who is all-powerful. And therefore, at any time, it's not like He can't do anything. You see? He could do anything. He's all-powerful God. And yet, how many times throughout our life, throughout the history of the world, throughout all of this, could God have done something and chosen not to exercise His power and authority? To hold back, to show restraint, if you will. And how much should that cause in us a sense of awe about our God? That we not just worship Him and praise Him for the power that He does display, but to worship Him and praise Him for the power that He chooses not to always display. You see. Now as we come into chapter 11 tonight, we're going to once again see the Jewishness of this chapter. Which again reminds us that God here in this seven-year tribulation period is dealing with the nation of Israel and the world through the nation of Israel. The church is gone. We are in glory. We are in heaven. And He's now returning His attention back to Israel. And we know that to be the case because we are introduced to here in the early verses of chapter 11 where the Jewish temple has been rebuilt. Which obviously means that before these events take place at some time in history, that's going to have to happen in Jerusalem that the Jewish temple will be rebuilt. Now before we get into chapter 11, one more thing. If there's ever a time in history that to me should prove to an atheist even that there is a God whose hand is in and on history. I want to take you back. I know some of you weren't even born yet, but some of us were. Some of us were still young. So most of what I learned about it, I had to read about it, because while it was going on, I didn't care about it. But I want to take you back to the year 1967, 
I want to take you back to something very significant that happened in 1967. The Six-Day War, where Israel fought against Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. And in that Six-Day War, Israel had a decisive victory over those three countries in six days. And Israel was able to push out and reclaim the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. It was a significant and decisive victory for Israel. In fact, so much so that many Jews from all over the world began to flood back in to Israel from being scattered abroad. But here's where it gets really funky. And this can only be explained to me by the hand of God. Because how can you explain the fact that Israel had such a decisive victory at that time, again, over Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. And yet, coming out of that decisive victory, Jerusalem was still not regarded and is still not regarded to this day by most of the nations in the world as the capital of Israel, first of all. And second of all, coming out of that decisive victory, the Jewish people were not even in control of the Temple Mount. But that the Temple Mount was and now still is in control by Muslims. And that the Jewish people aren't even allowed to worship on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. How can you explain that? Apart from God's hand being in human history. You see. And so we sit here today seeing that Jerusalem is still not regarded as the capital of Israel by most nations on earth. And in the midst of all the land that Israel has reclaimed to some degree, obviously not as much as one day it will reclaim, that even in all of that, here sits the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock on it. Now, obviously, we know that at some point, some major shifts are going to happen in the world that's going to cause shifts in what is happening, not only in Israel, but in Jerusalem itself. And please, don't miss the fact that what is going on in the Ukraine and Russia today and what is going on in Syria right now, and all of that is playing in to exactly what's going to need to happen in order for that shift to happen, in order for Israel to be able to go back up to that mount and begin to build a temple on it that will fulfill prophecy. Fascinating times we live in. So the reason I say that is because you'll notice as John begins chapter 11, he says, a measuring rod or reed like a staff 
And this word refers not to just a shepherd's staff, but this is the same word that's also used in another place to refer to the rod of iron that Jesus Christ is going to rule with during his reign on earth. A measuring rod, like a staff, was given to me. The reason why a shepherd's staff was such a good measuring rod is it was a very long stick, first of all. And second of all, it was hollowed out, so it was very light. So it was great for measuring things. And so John says, a measuring rod, like a staff, was given to me, and I was told, get up and measure the temple of God. Measure also the altar or place of sacrifice and measure the ones who are presently worshiping there. The word measure is an interesting word. It means to judge something or to evaluate something based on a standard. And God, in a sense, is sending out an angel to judge what's happening here in this temple complex, a measure. I want to remind all of us to this point that God measures our worship as well. And he measures those who are presently worshiping him, maybe not at the temple one day in Jerusalem, but wherever we choose to worship. And again, our worship of God is measured according not to our standard, but according to His standard. That's why Jesus even taught, they who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that our worship of God is something that is measured as well. He says, do not measure, verse 2, the outer courtyard of the temple. Leave it out. Literally, reject it. Because it has been given to the Gentiles. Literally, it has been handed over to those who are not worshiping the true God. On those who are literally trampling on the holy city. Holy city referring to Jerusalem for 42 months or three and a half years. By the way, the word trample means to occupy without appreciating. (laughs) They will occupy this place, but they won't truly appreciate what they have and, and, and where they are and how it connects with God and, and the worship of God. Now, obviously at this point, again, there's that understanding. Well, that means that one day there will be a rebuilt temple. In Jerusalem, absolutely. God has predicted it. Unlike, though, in Bible times, where there were four, basically, courtyards. You study the Old Testament, there, were, there was the, the courtyard where the, only the priests could go. Then there was the courtyard of men. Then there was the courtyard of women. And then there was the court of the Gentiles. Here, God is simply concentrating on those within And then he's saying to all those out who are actually occupying this place, but they do not appreciate it, and they're literally trampling it down, he says, reject that. Because they're not worshiping me. They're just occupying this place for a time. So we, we, we get sort of even, I want you to see tonight, an insight into the future here. 
that one of the things I think that is going to happen to cause this to come about is that somehow, some way, obviously there will be permission given to the Jewish people and to the nation of Israel to rebuild their temple, but there will also be a compromise involved that in that temple complex, there will also be forces, if you will, non-Jewish, non-compliant with the worship of the true God that will be allowed to occupy it to a point as well. There will be a shared occupation of this place, you see. And you can see how that's being set up even today with what's going on in Jerusalem, what's going on in the nation of Israel at this point. Now, again... I want us to think in this chapter tonight about the power and authority of God. So the first thing we see here in the first couple of verses is that God has the power and authority to measure something. It's His standard. It's not according to our standard or anyone else's standard. It's His standard it's set up, and everything revolves around His standard. And He has the power and authority to do it. To set the standard and to measure the standard, which is what's happening here. There's something else we see, and that is that God is able, because He is the one who has all authority and all power, and can give it to whoever He wants to accomplish His will and to give Him glory. And we talked about last week how God gives us, His church, great power and authority. Are we using it? Are we living in it? And here we see another example in Revelation chapter 11, that even in this dark period of of human history, this seven-year tribulation, with all the judgment and everything that's going on, God is still lighting a light and reaching out to those who will listen to the gospel. And we've already seen where he's going to send 144,000 Jewish evangelists out into the world to try to reach people who have any openness at all to God in their life. And now, here again, God is going to empower and give authority to two special witnesses. These are not part of the 144, but now an extra witness during this dark time. And notice in verse 3, it says, I will grant, I will supply, I will furnish my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days or three and a half years. By the way, the word witness there in the Greek is martyr. One who is steadfast unto death. And that's exactly what was going to happen to these two witnesses. But they were going to declare divine revelation for three and a half years. And God was going to empower them and give them authority. So as they, as they came on the scene and arose now in human history and sort of stepped on to the, to the stage of human history and began to prophesy, they were doing so in the power and authority that was granted to them by God. He describes these two as two olive trees, verse 4, and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. That's significant as well. He's taking us back to the Old Testament, to the light sources within the temple and even in the tabernacle. And they were fueled by oil. They would have oil that would run tubes up inside of them that would light them. So when he talks about the two olive trees, he's not just talking about the olive trees themselves, but in the context, it was olive oil that fueled the lampstands. It was the oil, you see. 
And so he's talking here about power sources, the olive trees, the sons of oil, literally, and then two light sources of him. And I, I wanted to emphasize that also because you and I can be power sources and light sources for God. He's given us his power, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, the resurrection power that raised up the Lord Jesus now resides within us through the Holy Spirit. And so we can be power sources and light sources. He says, I'm the light of the world. Later on, he says in the gospel to those who follow him, you are the light of the world. And so he desires that we be power sources and light sources, just like these two witnesses you see here. They stand immovable. They stand firm. And notice that even though they're prophesying before the whole earth, that they stand before the Lord. And what that simply means is even though they stand before men, and it's more important that any servant of God realize that first and foremost, we are ministering to the Lord. Not primarily ministering to people, primarily ministering to the Lord. That's why Paul would say, what you do, do it as unto the Lord, not unto men. And that's why the phrase before the Lord is used, even again, even though their ministry is going to be a worldwide ministry. Now, later on, again, and this is one of those passages years ago, before technology, people would go, how are they going to have a worldwide ministry? And how's people going to see their dead bodies from all over the world lying in the street once they're killed? Well, obviously, we know how that is today. hundred years ago, people were like scratching and go, wow, this, you know, again, especially critics would go, well, that can't be. And that's where, again, God has always proven right. The things that a hundred years ago would have seemed impossible, simply because they didn't have the technology then, we now know that anything in the world, almost anywhere in the world, can be seen by anyone in the world at any time. And so that's exactly what's happening here in chapter 11. Notice, if anyone wants to harm them, because their ministry is going to face opposition like no ministry has ever faced up to this point in history. You're serving the Lord and you think you're facing opposition? You ain't seen nothing yet? These two witnesses are going to be fiercely hated and fiercely opposed. But notice, they are going to manifest divine authority and power in their ministry because it says, if anyone wants to harm them, Fire is going to come out of their mouth and completely consume their enemies. Again, because God granted them authority. Now, does this mean literal fire is going to come out of their mouth? Hey, God can do anything. But I also think the Bible does teach the fact that His Word is a fire. And remember, He was giving them authority to prophesy. And even back in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, also in chapter 5, twice in the book of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah, my message in you is like a fire to them. It will burn them up. And so it could also simply be that the spoken word of God somehow judges them and consumes them. I don't know. 
I don't think there's enough evidence to go, well, is this some supernatural thing or whatever. Here's what I do know. If anyone wants to harm them, they're, they're done. Because God is saying, you can't touch them until their ministry is done. They're invincible. They're my two witnesses. And can I hopefully encourage you with this? If you are a child of God seeking to serve Him, you can think the same thing about yourself. You are invincible until God says, your ministry is done. Just like these two witnesses. So he says, fire comes out of their mouth, completely consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. It is a necessity established by God. God says, I want them on the earth for three and a half years to prophesy, to declare divine revelation. Anybody tries to shut them up for three and a half years, they're not going to be able to do it. God is all powerful and has all authority. He will give it to whom he will. And there is no higher authority or power in the universe. The world is going to hear the message of these two witnesses for three and a half years. And one of the reasons, again, why God is supernaturally going to protect these two witnesses is because it's going to be through their ministry that some people come to know God. And their whole eternity changes. So he's not going to let Satan or any demon or anyone in the world shut them up until their ministry is finished. Again, power and authority. Notice verse 6. These two have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the time they are prophesying. They also have the power to turn the water to blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague whenever they want. That's why this verse is why many people think that the two witnesses are going to be Moses and Elijah who come back. Because remember, Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot and Moses was buried by God and we don't even know where he's buried. Is it possible that this is Moses and Elijah? Absolutely. It, it certainly sounds like their ministry, but I will say this, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It could be just two witnesses empowered to do the same things that Moses and Elijah did do while they were here. But, but it is intriguing that Elijah was taken up and Moses was buried and nobody knows where he was buried. So they have these powers. Again, well, who gave them this power? Who gave them the power to shut the sky and turn the... And who gave them the power to call that fire? God did. God's power and authority. Everything they did, they did by the power and authority that was granted or supplied them by God. That's what we see here. That should be, again, a call to worship this God, our God, who has this kind of power and authority. But notice, verse 7, when they have completed, fulfilled, or finished their testimony, their witness, the beast... This one that comes up from this very deep-sealed reservoir of malevolent beings that we've already been introduced to. He's going to make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought God has authority and power. Yeah. But even in His authority and power, there are times in His plan where in His authority and power, He will allow what it looks like a 
a victory for the enemy. But we know that any victory that looks like it's a victory for Satan or, or the enemy of God is only something that's either very temporary, very superficial, or not a victory really at all. I mean, the greatest example in the history of that is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. God allowed the Son of God to die. And I'm sure for the forces of darkness, it was like, did, did we win? Are you kidding me? Three days later, the Prince of Life rises. And it has been finished, and there is victory now forever and ever. They're conquered. They're defeated. And so what seems maybe like, oh my goodness. And see, that's where we, you know, sometimes it may appear in our lives like, is God losing or is Satan winning? No. God's already won. Again, we don't fight for victory. We, as the church, fight from the victory that Jesus Christ has already secured. And therefore, don't get caught up in what seemingly may look like God lost. Because God doesn't lose. You see. Just as it's going to be like here. If these two were killed by this malevolent being from the abyss, again, he was given the power and authority to overcome them for a very short time. To accomplish God's purposes. No different than God allowing Satan to touch Job, but giving Satan certain boundaries, saying you can touch him here, but you can't do this. Because within my plan, this is going to accomplish my plan in Job's life. So I will use you, Satan, to accomplish my will. That's how great and awesome God is. And then again, he can even use the fallen angels that he created to accomplish his plan, his purposes, and to bring him glory. And we're going to see that same thing happen during the tribulation period. Because again, notice how short-lived it is. But let, let's, let's move on for just a second. Verse 8, their corpses will lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem. An intentional indignity, an intentional insult by the people of the world. That is symbolically, in other words, assessed by the Spirit of God called Sodom in Egypt. He's simply saying, this place, Jerusalem, has turned into spiritually Sodom and Egypt. And we know what God thought of Sodom and Egypt, both. He judged both of them. And that's exactly what Jerusalem has turned into. And we know it's Jerusalem because he, he says in verse 8, this is where their Lord was also crucified. Jerusalem. So for three and a half days, those from every people, tribe, nation, language, will look at their corpses. Here again, it was a phrase in the Bible that hundreds of years ago, people were like, people from all over the world aren't going to be able to see these two guys. How's that going to happen? Well, we know how it's going to happen. And they're literally going to stare at their two dead bodies for three and a half days. Well, not only that, look at what happened. They were hated so bad that the Bible says that they will not even be permitted to be placed in a tomb. And that those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. The word means to eat, drink, and be merry. Not only that, but notice, they declare a holiday 
They start sending gifts to each other like Christmas time. We have President's Day. This is going to be Dead Prophet Day. And they're going to be, they're going to be like something. Those dead, those prophets that, that tormented us, they're dead. Let's send gifts. Let's have a party. That's how hated the Word of God is by most on earth at this time. And notice it says, because these two prophets had what? Tormented those who lived on earth. How'd they torment them? By prophesying. By declaring the Word of God. See, that torments. See, for you and I, you love the Word of God. You, you want to hear the Word of God. The Word of God brings you joy. But for those who live in darkness, when they hear the clear Word of God, it torments them. To the point where they just want to shut up whoever is speaking the Word of God. And they want to close their ears to the truth. Because it's like a probe that digs in and uncovers what's really there. And they don't want God's truth to uncover anything. That's why they're tormented. So we see again the power and authority of God because at verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. God has authority and power over life and death. Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the keys. I hold the keys of hell and death. I hold the keys of life. I have power and authority. I want to give life to these two. I'll raise them back up. They don't stay dead if I don't want them dead. So again, we see the great power and authority of God. And the Bible says, fear seized those who were watching them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, ascend. So the two prophets went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies stared at them. Sorry, it's just when I I read things like this in prophecy, I just can't help but think, wonder what the networks are going to be saying. Just then a major earthquake took place and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest, though, were terrified and, notice, gave glory to the God of heaven. God was reaching people through these events. Through all of the teaching of these two witnesses. Through them being put to death, but then raised again. God was using this great manifestation of His power and authority to reach people and to bring them into a relationship with Him. That's how great His power and authority is. The second woe has come and gone and the third is coming quickly. Oh yeah, we're good. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Very important. In your Bible translation, it should be singular. It should be the kingdom of the world, not kingdoms. And here's why. Because it is a reminder to us that even though there are many, many different kingdoms on earth, that basically all of them can be lumped under one kingdom. Satan's kingdom. 
which we looked at last week. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus and he took him into this place and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give them to you. We know why he can give them to him. Because he said they were relinquished to me. They're mine. That's why the Bible says he is the God of this world. He is the prince and power of the air. This world isn't God's kingdom. God's kingdom's coming. This world is Satan's kingdom manifested in all these different kingdoms that that we call nations and all of that. But they're all under the influence and control of one kingdom. And the Bible says one day all these kingdoms that are under the one kingdom is going to be taken by Jesus Christ. And they're going to become His kingdom to rule and reign over. And notice, He will reign forever and ever. He will be king. He will rule without end. This is the message from the Word of God from Genesis through Revelation. Hundreds of verses that talk about the fact that Jesus Christ and His kingdom would be one that would be without end. Isaiah 9, I mean, we could go on and on. All through the Old and New Testament, God kept telling people, my son's going to rule one day, and his rule will be without end. And that's exactly what we see happening here. By the way, the words has become, in verse 15, very important in the original language. They are what's called a prophetic aorist. And simply what that means is this. It is so certain that it is going to happen that God has made it look as if it already did happen. Now think about that. Again, that shows His power and authority. Only God could predict something that's going to happen and say, this is so sure it's going to happen, I'm going to write as if it already happened. Because in God's mind, it did already happen. Because no one or nothing's going to thwart the purposes and will of God here. Jesus Christ is going to take over this world one day, and He is going to rule and reign. So from God's perspective, it's not like it's the, 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 you know, the end is still in the balance. Like somehow the game is still to be decided. Again, it's already been decided. And God said, this is the way it will be. And Satan and all the demons of hell and all the people on earth who hate God and oppose His will, none of them can stop God's will from being done on this earth as He has predicted. He wins, my friends. And therefore, those of us who have chosen to follow Him, we win as well. Because He said, you're going to be part of my everlasting kingdom. So notice then, in response to all this, the worship. The 24 elders, the partners and assistants in the divine administration, seated on their thrones before God, threw themselves down with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. And again, remember, the word worship here means to fall upon one's knees, expressing profound reverence and respect for God. And as they did that, they said these words, We give you thanks, Lord God. Notice, the all-powerful, the ruler of all, the one who holds sway over all things. Greek word, pantocrator. That's what it means. All-powerful. No one greater. 
That's our God. Our God's a great God. No one greater. All powerful. And notice, you are the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Very important. Now here's where I get to the point I talked about right at the beginning. Notice something really important here. What that reminds us of is this. God always had the power to start reigning. It's not like somehow at any time in human history, God could have just said, I'm reigning now. Here you go. I'm wiping you. I'm I'm setting you aside. I'm going to set up my kingdom. But God has chosen to hold back the power that he could have displayed at any time until this time to come. Now think about this. This this is, I think, going to be convicting, because at least it was to me. If it wasn't to you, then I'm, I'm sorry. I think about as a mere, fallen, fragile, frail human being, how throughout my life, I've displayed no restraint, haven't held back. And then I think about God, who is the almighty God, who could do whatever he wanted to do at any time, and yet chooses most of the time not to display his power and authority like he could but deals with us in such a condescending, humble way. I mean, when you think about it, all he would have to do is think something, and it would happen. All he would have to do, like he did with the creation of the universe, is just to speak the word, and it would be done. And so... For all the times the Bible reveals to us when God did display His power, and we praise and worship Him for it. And for all the times even in our own lives when we see God displaying power and authority and we praise Him and worship Him for it. Let's not forget to also praise and worship God for the times that He could have done something and He chose not to do it. The times even in my own life where God could have been way harder and harsher on Jeff Royce than he was. And I would have deserved it. But God chose not to do it. He held back. See, what I think probably angers God and frustrates God is when people will say, you know, oh, how could God judge so many people and and do that? 
and, and pull out something like that and, and use that as somehow a, an argument against the character of God and not realize the hundreds of thousands of times that God didn't do something when He could have done something. And that's how warped we are in our thinking and even our concept of God. Because just like with us, and we get frustrated because sometimes we can't win with people no matter what we do, take God to a whole other level. God can't win no matter what He does. If He chooses to restrain, where's God? How comes He's not doing something? Then when He did stuff throughout history, why'd God do that? He can't win, folks. Which is why He just is God. Because He knows what's best. And those of us who are fallen, fragile, and frail human beings who try to tell God what's best, thank you, God, that you have such patience whenever we have no idea about anything, about running a universe, about creating a universe, about bringing a universe to its intended goal, and yet somehow, some way, we think we know better than God. And God just says, okay, I'm going to let that one go. I'm going to hold back. The thing we see in Revelation is there does come a point where God doesn't hold back or restrain any longer. Where God will say, enough is enough. So I, verse, verse 17 to me was just profound. When it reminded me that he always had the power to take over and to reign on earth. But it was now at this time that finally he took his power and began to reign. Notice the reaction of the nations. They were enraged. They were angry, infuriated, resentful, offended. That's what the word means. Because the majority of people on earth, especially at this time, don't want God to be king. They want to be king. They want to run things. And so they are so angry that God is taking over and that His wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged. The time has come to give your servants, the prophets, their reward as well as to the saints and to those who revere your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Literally, it means God's going to throw them out and bring in a new administration. Sounds like something. Well, okay, we won't, we won't do that. We could say that about all the administrations all over the world. The world's a mess. And it's only going to take Jesus Christ to be able to straighten it all out. The time has come. Again, you notice that phrase being repeated. And again, it's just a reminder that, wow, God. You know, all those days that you're there and, and you see what's going on and, and you see more and more people just slandering you and, and blaspheming you and, and even calling your very existence into question. And you could just shut their mouths, but you restrain and you hold back because also out of your great love and grace and mercy, 
you know that it's only by holding back that some more are going to come to a relationship with you. That's why the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And that's why Peter says in 2 Peter, the Lord's not slack concerning His promise, but He's being very patient so that others may come to know Him. So notice, the temple of God then in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was visible. Many people have wondered, where did the ark go? We can't find the ark. There have been shows on television about trying to find out where did the ark go. I don't think it's in a storeroom in Washington like Indiana Jones left us there. I know. You, you would think so, huh? God has the Ark of the Covenant up there in heaven and it's going to be visible within His temple. And there were flashes of lightning, roaring crashes of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. These all speak of impending judgment to come. Why the Ark of the Covenant? Why the reference there as John ends this chapter? Because just like with any judgment, it's always according to His Word and His standards and the way God says this is the way it's going to be done. And in that Ark of the Covenant, there is contained within it not only the tablets that Moses brought, but Aaron's rod that budded and the pot of manna. And all of those are reminding God's people, not only the nation of Israel, but God's people down through the centuries. This is how God wanted it. And it also testifies and witnesses to the hard-heartedness of men who wanted to do it their way instead of God's way. And so that Ark of the Covenant will once again, and those things contained in it, will be displayed there before the judgment comes. Chapter 11 of Revelation is all about God's power and authority. Whether it's His power and authority to measure whether it's His power and authority that He gave to the two witnesses for their ministry to resurrect them, to His power and authority to even allow the angel out of the abyss to overcome them. It's all about His power and authority, even to the point where one day He's going to take His great power and He's going to turn the kingdom now of this earth into His kingdom. So chapter 11 is reminding us That as we think, as we meditate, as we ponder the great power and authority of God, there is so much to praise and worship Him for. And let's also remember this. That as God greatly at times displays His power and authority, there's also maybe even more times where God chooses not to display His power and authority. And it's even at those times that He is to be worshipped and praised as well. Not just for the times He chooses to express Himself, but the times He chooses to show restraint. Because, like us, who are not all-powerful, there are many times where we choose even not being powerful at all to show no restraint. How much more glorious and great is it for the one who has all power and again could do anything at any time to most of the time not doing it. That's a great God. That's an awesome God. 
That's a God to be worshipped and praised. That's a God to love and adore. That kind of God. Let's pray. God, may we be in awe of You tonight. May we stand in awe of You throughout our life. Give us, Lord, the eyes to recognize and acknowledge Your great power that is displayed before us every day. Whether it be in creation, in our own life, in our own salvation, in ways, Lord, that we can see Your great power and authority demonstrated. But Lord, also give us eyes to see, in a sense, that the all-powerful God also chooses because of His love, His grace, and His mercy to many times not demonstrate His power and authority. God, we thank You for that. We are alive because of that. So God, give us eyes to see You in all Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. See you Sunday. By the way, Sunday's communion Sunday.